Hi, I'm Russ Wenner from the Techie Geek Podcast, live at the Ohio Linux Fest 2009. And you are listening to Linux in the Handshack. Welcome back to Linux in the Ham Shack. Linux in the Ham Shack, the uh, show that asks the musical question, why? Anyway, uh, my name is Richard, KB5JBV, and I'm one of the one of the hosts of this carnival, carnival of thrills, this magnificent thrill ride that doesn't make anybody turn into any ethnic thing. I would like to introduce uh, my co-host on this uh, particular endeavor and he is that poster child for all the yummy linux goodness russ k5tux say hello to everybody russ good afternoon evening or morning to everybody this is russ k5tux that's richard kb5jbv over there and since we're talking about carnivals everybody should go out and check out the movie carnival of souls good movie really strange old and black and white but Worth the watch. Anyway, uh, not really related to Linux or ham shacks. So back to Richard. That's okay because we're not going to relate nothing to nothing, no how, because Russ is in Arkansas and we don't even want to talk about relationships up there. But that's okay. That's okay. Now, we'd like to welcome everybody in the chat room. Good evening, everybody. There's Bill, K9WKA. KB3CDA, KC5EWI, out in uh, Wiley, Texas, I think, uh, KC8BEW, and the two unidentified Ustreamers out there in the chat room this evening. First of all, I'd like to say, y'all need to be like sending some wonderful, nice thank you stuff to Bill, K9WKA at blacksparrowmedia.com, and tell him how wonderful his show notes are because he's been working his butt off to get both shows caught up on the show notes really kicking butt he disappeared on us last night while we were last time while we were turning turning japanese but i don't think he wanted to be associated with that particular endeavor because we had flat lost our minds that's what happens when richard's off his meds and russ is on his meds but that's okay we're gonna calm down we're gonna relax we're gonna chill I'm taking deep breaths in and out, making sure everything stays calm and cool for at least the first 10 minutes. After that, I make no guarantees. We're very mellow, very mellow. And Russ is going to be 40. 40? Yeah. Yep, the big 4 Russ is going to be 40 on December 5th. December 
five. So all of you that are in the chat room this evening, if for some reason the fact that Russ's birthday is on December 5th gets cut out of the show, y'all make sure you go out there and put it all over your blogs, paste it on the internet, put it on Twitter, paste it in the chat rooms over at QRZ, do everything you can so everybody knows that they need to get a hold of Russ on December the 5th. They're also invited to his party. I have a have a extra invite over at uh, uh, Facebook. I'll let y'all have. Everybody Enough is welcome, you- and uh, anyone who brings any, anybody who brings amateur radio gear as a gift that has uh, four digits in the price um, will get a very special thank you. <laughs> and for everybody else at the party, bring liquor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough of this pleasantry and fun, and let us move on to email, feedback, tweets, whatever the heck we got. What you got over there, Russ, because I ain't got a, uh, I can't even say it, I ain't got nothing over here. Well, I'll do the advertisement, and I do have uh, something to mention after, I guess you said you had one email, and you're not talking about the ad, are you? Yeah, it's advertisement. All right, well, you go ahead and do the advertisement, then I'll do my thing after. Hi, guys. This is uh, Joe's Port... No, you minute. can't do that with a Japanese, Japanese gene is kicking in again. Yeah. <laughs> he's, from, he's from the Netherlands, so you have to do it with a kind of Germanic thing. Yeah. <laughs> or not. You could just try and read it. Here, let me anyway, give it a shot. Uh, he Joe. says he's a volunteer with KDE, the KDE community, and wanted to mention the upcoming Camp KDE. Now, y'all know not to throw these names at me. Y'all kept trying to cross me up with all these weird city names and stuff, and uh, the worst one, in fact, I could conquer the ones in Australia. It was the ones in South Carolina that really gave me a problem. Anyway, back to our show. I'm a volunteer in the uh, KDE community. I wanted to mention the upcoming Camp KDE from January 15th to the 22nd. The annual U.S. meeting of the KDE community will take place at the University of California in sunny San Diego. So, if you want to meet cool people, hear interesting talk, and see what the future of the free desktop will look like, you should be there. It is open to anyone, so you're all invited. Ever last one of you. And while there will be some technical and less technical talks, we're still looking for more interesting topics, so if you have something to say, let us know. It'd be great if you could mention this on your show. So for more info on the uh, Camp KDE, y'all go on over to, let me say this slowly because it's kind of late for Bill, camp.kde.org. And he says, see you in San Diego. Greets and have a great show. We say it's an advertisement. It is simply a piece of feedback we got, a piece of email. I have over the years been a fan of KDE, but uh, I run primarily GNOME here now because of the uh, memory requirements, but that's okay. Y'all uh, go on over and check that out at camp.kde.org. Well, Russ, what do you think about that one? I was actually kind of interested to see that one, uh, mostly because I would like to interview somebody at KDE, and primarily because I'm, like you, a GNOME user, and have been for quite some time since KDE seemed to get a lot bulkier at one point. They seem to be clearing that up a little bit. And a little while ago, I installed a virtual machine of Slackware version 13. It defaults to the K desktop environment. 
it was the latest one, 4.3. whatever I believe it is, I was actually fairly impressed with what I saw of KDE. Maybe that doesn't worry me exactly, but I, I hate to have to switch back at this point since I like GNOME so much, and I'm really getting used to it under Ubuntu. It would be nice to talk to somebody at KDE and see what they what they are doing and how they view their desktop environment as opposed to GNOME. And it would be really cool if we could get one of them and Stormy Peters on at the same time and they could duke it out. <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, there you go. I mean, I used to use uh, KDE, and I used it when about the time KDE 3.5 came out. I mean, it always did me a good job. The only problem I ever really had was the fact that it was just a little too large. And then they went to 4. I really don't like 4. I don't like the way it's set up. I, I have tried using it running um, Kubuntu over here because my son-in-law is a fanboy of Kubuntu, and he loves KDE and blah, blah, blah. And so I run one in a virtual machine over here so I can help him out. But that's the only reason. I really don't care for it. However, it is a good desktop. It's just too bulky for what I do day to day. So I guess we pretty much beat that dead horse completely into pulp. And I think it's time to move on to the next piece of feedback. So what have you got over there, Russ? Well, I don't have feedback. What I do have are donations. Oh, money. I forgot about that. (laughs) I have three of them this time. Once again, during the last podcast, Paul donated again. Now, this is Paul Shirey from Teen Radio Journey at teenradiojourney.com. And I guess we should pause at this point to congratulate Paul, who did get his call sign on Thursday last week. Uh, he passed his technician exam, and he got the call sign KC9QYB. Thank you once again for your donation. We also had a donation from Joel. Since we don't have a call sign, we'll give it out any more information than that. So we want to thank Joel for his contribution. I haven't match these yet because i'm actually a little short on funds myself right now but as soon as i get them i will of course uh match these funds last but not least we got a donation from walter out in california this was another one of those uh very very generous donations so i want to thank walter very much for his donation uh i believe he has tied two other folks for the highest donation to either podcast at this point Y'all keep them coming, cause Russ is gonna try and make me go to Dayton. And when we go to Dayton, I'm gonna have a, I'm gonna make a banner. Well, I'm gonna order a banner, rather. I'm not gonna make it myself. And all of the people who donated are gonna be on that banner. So, thank you very much for that, and keep those donations coming. And we're actually pretty, with my contribution to matching what we've come in so far, I believe we are about halfway to the goal. So that's pretty good. We have until February, so. But even if we hit the goal, that don't mean you have to stop sending money. Because the more we got, the more we can buy gas, the better we'll be, we'll, we'll, things will be wonderful. Everything else, I'll be able to retire in the country somewhere in the hills of Arkansas. And I'll okay. be moving to southeastern Dallas County. And there you have it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I did have a Google alert that came in as well um, that sh- showed that our podcast... BlackSparrowMedia.com stroke LHS, the website for it anyway, showed up in Linuxine.com, a Linux e-zine. And I didn't bother going to look through this whole post and everything, but it had something to do with donations to Linux Mint, I think, and we showed up in there. So 
I'm not sure who is responsible for that or what kind of advertising or mention we're going to get out of it, but we're there. And if you want to check out the Linux e-zine, Linux zine, go to linuxzine.com. They probably just pulled down the donator list from over at Linux Mint because we're like there in great big letters, great big letters. Yeah, and we are sponsoring Linux Mint, so uh, if no, if nothing else, give it a try. Download it. Tell Clem how much you like Linux Mint, even if you don't. And if you don't like it, you know, pick another distribution, and that's fine. But at least try it if you haven't. It's it's worth a try. That's right. And go over to go over to the Windows website and say, hey. <laughs> yes, I got my first email today from a, a gal I work with. That down at the bottom it says, Windows 7, I made this. <laughs> yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> that ad campaign right. is really getting old. And uh, yeah. you're a fan of the Mintcast, right? I was listening to it. All my podcasts are kind of down right now because I can't find an appropriate piece of software in Linux to uh, download them, get them installed, and knock them out when I'm finished with them. Well, since we're talking about Mint, I was listening to the last version of Mintcast, number 25. They they came out with another one today. But the, the last one, we we had a guy write in and say, are we going to host a Windows 7 party? And we were like, oh, no, we're not going to do that. Well, one of the co-hosts of Mintcast had a Windows 7 party. That is sad. Yeah, that's very sad. He spent about half the episode tra- talking about it, too. <laughs> you know what? You guys over at Mintcast, y'all pass the word, because if they ain't listening to the podcast, if you guys ain't listening to this podcast, then uh, you guys in the chat room, it's up to y'all to k- spread the word out on Twitter or whatever and let them guys know they're traitors. <laughs> traitors. Oh, I don't know if they're traitors exactly. They weren't... A- he made it sound like he was using all of his all of their free stuff that they got, and apparently it was a pretty decent amount of free stuff that Windows gave away if you hosted one of these parties. Mm-hmm. Pawns of the establishment. Yeah, Pawns. I tweeted I tweeted yesterday about uh, Family Guy advertising for Windows Seven too. Boy, very disappointing. Oh my God, the world's gone mad. The world's <laughs> gone mad. No, the world's gone money hungry. <laughs> All right, enough of this. Uh, so, what else have you got, Russ? Feedback wise, that's it. I'm I'm plumb out of feedback and donations. Although I'm certainly happy about what's been coming in. All right, folks, we need to have you send your feedback and your comments and your questions, and you can send them to me at k5tux at blacksparrowmedia.com. You can send them to Richard at kb5jbv at blacksparrowmedia.com. You can even phone them in. That's right. You don't even have to uh, type if you don't want to. We have a toll-free number, 888-455-0305, 888-455-0305. Give us a call, leave your message, and we'll put you on the podcast unless you tell us not to. Make sure you send us some email, send some feedback. we got to have stuff to respond to. And, uh, that, and donations, don't forget those. I think that's all I've got to say about that, so we can probably move on unless you've got something else to throw in here. And that's it. It's feast or famine around here, y'all. If y'all remember, it hadn't been too long back that we spent a long time doing email on one show. But you know what? I think we've pretty much got it uh, got it all covered. So uh, with that, I think we probably need to play some music because it's probably time for y'all to go get something to drink. And we'll be right back. Yeah. 
We're rip snorting, ready to go. Okay, Russ is gonna gonna introduce our next segment so we can get on down the road. Here a little bit later in the show, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna talk about shortwave a little bit. We got some questions about that out at Ohio Linux Fest, and we're not gonna bore y'all with any more tape from there, not at least this time. So, Russ, take it away. Yeah, I think I pretty much burned up all the Ohio Linux Fest we're going to be doing. It's uh, getting old and dated and crusty and all that now anyway, so no more OLF. However, I did dig out my uh, topics that people came up and talked to me about when I was there, and it was on my iPhone, and I dug my notes out the other night and decided that maybe we should probably bring some of these up. But that's going to be in Segment 3. What Segment 2 is going to be about tonight is... Two topics that we talked about, Richard and I, two weeks ago, we'll call it. And because our little roundtable went a little nuts and a little long, that segment didn't make it into the podcast. So what you're going to hear... (laughs) We were all party to it, 
You don't have to apologize. I was turning Japanese. <laughs> what you're going to hear now is about 18 minutes of audio from a couple of weeks ago. It's still relevant information, and it's actually not insanity. After that, we'll throw in a little music bumper, and we'll be back with the third segment, which deals with shortwave listening. All right. I wanted to go ahead and talk for a few minutes. You know, uh, a few episodes back, I told you all that I had acquired a free laptop, a Dell Latitude laptop that uh, was kind of old, and I was having uh, just all kinds of stuff going on with it. It is turning into a ham radio project because when I get finished with it, I've decided I'm going to use it uh, primarily for mobile operations, programming D-Star radios, and running D-Rats. So uh, I got this thing, and it's about 10, 11 years old. Runs fine. Batteries are still pretty good. Uh, it's got a CD drive in it, serial port, and USB port. You know, all the stuff you you would need to, uh, to run uh, your uh, computer mobile with the uh, HF rig or something like that. So anyway, I start working on this thing. I worked with it for two, three weeks and could not get it to boot off of the CD drive. Now, this wouldn't be an issue if it wasn't a computer that originally had Windows 98 on it, and it has 128 megs of memory and a 6 gig hard drive. The unfortunate part is that it had Windows XP on it, and it took, a, I guarantee you, 30 minutes to boot up. So, uh, I was working to rectify that. I called Dell. I went through the, jumped through the hoops of getting it registered and all that good stuff. And then we went over to tech support. I was on the phone for four hours straight with these people, four hours straight. And at the end, they couldn't help me. And the only thing that I got was, well, just go ahead and run it. When I'm trying to tell this guy that I have a bootleg copy of Windows XP on this Dell computer. So Dell, Dell's answer is if you're running a bootleg copy of XP, go ahead and run it. So I put it over in the corner and kind of forgot about it for a while. It was too much hassle to mess with it and that kind of stuff. My, my other laptop runs just fine for the most part. Here about a week and a half ago, I decided to take it back out and mess with it. So I started working with it, did everything I could, tried to burn a uh, floppy CD for it. I've got a, well, in fact, I've got a USB floppy drive, plugs into USB port. So I tried to, uh, tried to make a, uh, a boot disk for it and I was able, successful in making the boot disk, but I couldn't get it to acknowledge the drive before the operating system loaded. Then I tried burning a, uh, making a bootable, bootable thumb drive. And unfortunately I had now have a bootable thumb drive that Dell Latitude would not access it as a boot device. So I'm sitting here and I'm getting ready to pitch the thing. And I finally do the thing that I really didn't want to do. While I was dealing with it initially, I found out that uh, to get the BIOS to reset, and that was a big problem. I couldn't unlock the BIOS. There's a system administrator password on the BIOS on Dell computers and if you don't have that password, which you have to get from Dell, you can't get into the BIOS. Well, you can get in there, but you can't change anything. So what I had discovered out on the net was that you have to had to go in there, short circuit one of the BIOS chips to reset the BIOS where you can get in there. So I went and found the website, went down through the steps. I had to completely disassemble this laptop. 
finally get to the BIOS chip, which is up under uh, the motherboard in between where the uh, battery deck is and the PC MCIA slots are, get up in there, put a paper clip on it, short it with a paper clip, and turn it on. I did it. Success. Success. Currently has a copy of Zubuntu Linux on it. Now, it uh, runs a little clunky with Firefox running. However, it will run just fine with Medora, which uh, after looking at Medora, I think it's just a stripped-down version of Firefox. And uh, I also have DRATS loaded into it and haven't had a chance to configure it yet. So I will keep you all posted on what's going on with this thing. Once again, we're working with a laptop with 128 megs of memory in it and a 6-gig hard drive, and we're starting to make progress. So uh, this will definitely give us an opportunity to uh, at least bring some insight concerning that. Uh, we may even have to have Bill chime in on it at some point. So now that I've run my head for uh, however long I've been running my head, what are your thoughts on that, Russ? The BIOS thing, that, that actually worked, huh? It did work. I was kind of concerned because of the size of the chip. The chip is microscopic. It's about a quarter of the size of my little thumbnail. And you have to hit two out of eight legs on this thing. I do have something else to add to that when we get a little further along, but we're talking about the BIOS chip. But, yeah, you turn it on, you think you've blown the thing up, and then you take the uh, take the paper clip loose from the two legs, and boom, it's there. Well, that's very cool because I haven't seen in the past any other way to get around those BIOS passwords. So it's good to know there's actually a way to do it, not that I've had a uh, laptop of that vintage for a while. Last well, I'm one, fixing uh, to go in a Dell Latitude business. <laughs> well, I have a Dell Latitude right now, but it's it's uh it's a newer vintage. The last uh the last old laptop I had was a Fujitsu and I sold it to some guy in Spain. I remember shipping it over there was fun. Anyway, um I've got my work computer and I've been thinking about converting it over. Uh, right now I'm running Ubuntu. Okay, let me back up a second. Uh on Monday I installed Ubuntu 9.10 on it. I did an upgrade to uh, Karma Koala, and that seemed to fix a lot of problems I was having with Jaunty, which worked out really well. The only problem is it seems to be running really slow, plus I run a, bu- a bunch of virtual machines on my computer, so I wanted to take the RAID away. I've been running software RAID on it, and I've been wanting to take that away and split it, so I have one hard drive to install all my virtual machines on and the other one to install my regular OS on, which I want to be Ubuntu Karmic, which is all well and good. So I got the, I got the software array decoupled. So now I'm running with a bunch of degraded arrays. I got the second hard drive formatted and got all the stuff that I want to put on and over there. I decided, well, Hey, why don't I, you know, put my money where my mouth is, so to speak, and install Linux mint on it. So I downloaded the 64-bit version of Linux Mint. I uh, tried to install it, and it basically blew up in my face. So I'm not sure what's going on there. The installer couldn't start the X server through a bunch of errors that I don't remember right now, and basically exploded. So, so much for Linux Mint 7 on my work PC. One of the reasons I went with Ubuntu is the fact that I wanted to put... DSL or 
puppy Linux on this machine. Now, at the time I went to looking for a distro to put on it, the puppy site was down. I assumed that they had folded. So uh, I went over to DSL and downloaded a copy of well, Damn Small Linux, for those of y'all who don't know what DSL is. Anyway, I went over to uh, the DSL site and downloaded a copy. Uh, got it to boot. Man, it boots quick. But the problem was I couldn't get figure out how to get my network card working with it. Went ahead and installed Zubuntu to uh, you know, get things up and running. Brought it up. It runs. The only time I really have any slowdown is when, uh, like I said before, when I'm running Firefox. Of course, in the situation we're running a lot of this stuff, Firefox is a huge program. I'm right on that, ain't it, Russ? He was dozing, y'all. No, I was muted. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, Firefox is getting to be uh, one of those bloatware apps. It's definitely causing problems for me, too. That's the deal. Everything else I've run, the the terminal runs nice and quick. I really haven't done a whole lot with it. Uh, I've been using some of the command line stuff that I've been using and that kind of stuff, but... uh, uh, that's the only thing that really seems to bog it down at this point. And since my intentions are to use, uh, use some stuff that's fairly light on that particular machine, you know, FLDG and DRATS, radio programming software and that kind of stuff. Doggone, I installed a copy of Google Earth on it yesterday simply to help out my son-in-law who, uh, thank God is no longer a Susie fanboy. He is now a Kubuntu fanboy. Took it right back off, and it runs just like it's supposed to. And Google Earth's about as top heavy or bottom heavy as it come. Well, back to my issue with Ubuntu. Um, I actually got a pretty good performance uh, in the jump from Jaunty to Karmic, uh, even with the upgrade. But I would like to start over, uh, repartition my computer, and do everything. So I'll just uh, I'll figure it out. But one way or the other, we'll report on it. And uh, there's something I want to address in the chat room. There was a question. A little bit ago from N3JIM, and he asked what virtualization software I use. Right now, I'm using uh, VMware Server, the, the free version, 2.02, but I'm getting real tired of, of VMware uh, lately. When I upgraded to Karmic, it basically broke VMware, and of course, VMware is currently only supporting something up to... The 2.6. I want to say 24 kernel, something like that. Maybe even a little earlier than that. And of course, Karmic's default kernel is 2.6.31, which VMware doesn't support. And you have to find third-party hacks to make it work. And it doesn't work real well. And the mouse support is all screwed up. And blah blah blah. You know, I can go on forever about that. But what I have done is decided that I think I'm going to switch over to Sun's VirtualBox, which looks like it copies a lot of the things that VMware did or VMware copied it. Not sure which one uh, came first exactly. At least the support for some of the newer operating systems like the 64-bit Linuxes and even Windows 7 is in there in the latest version of VirtualBox. So I am going to go with Sun's VirtualBox and see how that is. Of course, I'm not sure if there's any conversion utilities for my virtual machines as they exist for VMware. I'm guessing probably not. So that means I'm going to have to start over. That's not that big a deal. Just something that needs to be dealt with, I guess. 
I guess uh, in a future episode we can talk about VirtualBox as well. But anyway, I want to thank uh, N3JIM for the question because uh, it allowed me to talk about VirtualBox. Yay! <laughs> and Sun doesn't do a lot right these days, but VirtualBox is one of the things that looks pretty promising. Well, let me tell you about VirtualBox. We're talking about running stuff inside stuff, right? So uh, VirtualBox, I, that's the only one I've ever really used. And, I mean, it's really great because uh, it's like I'm talking about my, my son-in-law. You know, I run Ubuntu. I've got Zubuntu on the laptop. And I really don't fool with KDE because it's just uh, too much overhead for me. I want my machines to run quickly, and I don't want to eat up all my space by what I'm looking at. And uh, VirtualBox, man, I, I really thought it was going to be another one of those big company buys out, uh, little little old company, and uh, product gets absorbed and turns to crap. But it, it, in fact, it went the other direction. So I'm thoroughly impressed with it, and uh, I use it a lot. Well, I plan on using VirtualBox a lot, too, because I'm planning on dumping VMware. It's totally tired of some of the problems that it has, plus the, the free version's uh, web interface where you have to do everything via HTTP, and then Java is really getting on my nerves. <laughs> and, of course, the newest version, they've given away ESXi server as well, which is cool because it's a great virtualization platform, and it's fast and all of that good stuff. But the problem is ESXi is basically a Linux platform, it's built on Linux. It's a Linux installer. And yet the vSphere client, the the only way you can access it is Windows only. So I'm not sure what they're thinking there, but that's annoying as well. And, I mean, it's Windows only to the point it's not even Mac OS. Uh, it, I mean, it's literally Windows only. So uh, I find that kind of ridiculous, especially since the uh, server side of the platform is, is Linux. But anyway... So I'm starting to move away from VMware. Yay. I'm sure everybody's jumping up and down, clapping and dancing for joy or something like that. Who's that talking about taking GIMP out of Ubuntu? What? Are you out of your mind? So the thing is, if they're taking GIMP out, what are they putting in? And what's the reason for dropping GIMP? It can't be a licensing issue because Ubuntu doesn't really care about that. Well, you can have Photoshop if you want to pay $400 for it. And this must be what Matt's referring to. It looks like uh, this is from Slashdot. It looks like the Ubuntu developers consider GIMP to be too powerful for the normal desktop user. They're removing it from the upcoming Ubuntu 10.04. Among the reasons cited are that the UI is too complex, it takes up room on the disk, and desktop users just want to edit photos, and they can do that in F-Spot. I want to edit them too, but I want to put my head on some of these young, studly guys' bodies. How do you think I'm going to get employment in the future? <laughs> So anyway, thanks for giving us a heads up on that, Matt. And if you guys want to check that out, or if anyone wants to check that out, check out, just do a search for Ubuntu and GIMP on Slashdot, and that will give you the relevant info. Well, there's enough rambling for segment two. We'll be back in a little bit. Country of Mary, a rich man, came true one day. Mom and Dad said, we're proud of you, glad to hear your debts are paid. Now she calls home to tell them she's always on his mind. Yeah, he's gone a lot, but he's good about calling all the time. Ordering crystal glasses, taking vitamins and 
Let's talk a little bit about shortwave listening. Uh, Russ was telling me he was out at Ohio Linux Fest, and he got asked some questions, a couple subjects that people wanted to hear us cover. And tonight, or this time around, we're going to go this fortnight. We're going to go down through here, and we're going to talk about one of those subjects. Now, it's not exactly amateur radio, however, uh, it could be. Now, I know that I've been a... a a shortwave listener in the past. In fact, that's one of the things that got me into amateur radio is the fact that uh, my father brought home a Hallicrafter shortwave receiver when I was a little kid. And I'd sit there and late at night with the orange glow of the tubes on the wall, listening to faraway places and, and that kind of stuff. BBC World Service and, uh, it was really cool when I was a kid. So let's run over some basics, uh, where, uh, Shortwave receiving is concerned. You know, in some company, in some countries, you have to be a shortwave listener for X amount of time or collects X amount of, uh, shortwave, uh, 
QSL cards from your shortwave listening before you actually qualify for the license, or at least it used to be that way. It may still be that way to this day. There's a lot of folks out there doing it. There's some folks that just like to listen to international broadcasts. I know uh, at one time uh, when the desk wasn't so cluttered that I had a uh, radio show that I listened to that came out of Japan that uh, about 3 in the afternoon that was actually a morning drive time show in Japan. But it was in English, so I sat and listened to it because the music was kind of good, and the guys were actually halfway funny. For those of y'all out there that are interested in listening to shortwave, and uh, we may talk about scanners on another episode, uh, you have to understand it's pretty close to uh, dealing with your transceivers. You know, it's, it's about having a receiver, proper antenna, knowing where to listen, and there's even software for the Linux operating system. That's one of the reasons we're talking about it here today. So uh, I was chugging around looking at receivers. You know, I, I know there's a handful of good ones out there, and there's a lot of good used ones to be had out there. And uh, one of the more popular ones seems to be the uh, 10Tech RX320D. And as I was reading down through a couple of articles about it, what I did find is that not only is there software available for the uh, for this re- receiver in general, that's available through the Linux repositories, and some of their uh, their uh, software not may not be exactly written for the Linux operating system. However, the source code is available over at SourceForge. And uh, as I got a little further down in some of these articles, you know, this guy, he he listens to, like, KOL Israel Israel Radio News out of, uh, out of Israel. I think it's out of Tel Aviv. I'm not sure. And that kind of stuff. And then he goes a little further down in the, in the uh, article and starts talking about something called DRM. Now, for most of us, DRM means digital rights management. And uh, that's bad, digital rights management. That makes it where we can't play our music, where we want to play our music, when we want to play our music at all. However, DRM is a uh, a digital audio protocol in the, in radios that uh, is starting to come into its own and going to be uh, more and more common as years go by. I can't pronounce the last word. I think it's radio, digital radio mondial. DRM. And what this basically is, it's a digital, it's a format for digitizing these signals and sending them over the air. Uh, it can give you almost FM quality via an AM broadcast over HF. And one of the uh, benefits or drawbacks, depending on how you look at it, is either the signal is completely there and crystal clear or it's not there at all just like most digital radio protocols. For those of you that have dealt with something like D-Star or uh, some of the digital slow-scan TV, you know you know what it's like. It's either there or it's not there. In fact, even on your new uh, on your televisions with the new digital transmitters that they're using for uh, broadcast television, you know either the signal's there and it's rock solid or it's gone. This is one of the radios, just one of the radios that's out there. There are companies out there that, that build these things. Uh, you can get them from Yezu, Icom, Kenwood. Uh, there's a company out there called Sea Crane that builds really good radios. Uh, Gene Steinberg over at the Paragast and Tech Night Owl, uh, highly recommends the Sea Crane radios and that kind of stuff. So now we, you know, we've kind of got into the basic part of the, uh, the shortwave listening thing. And let me turn it over to Russ a minute and see if he has any comments so far before we move on. 
I just have some personal experience comments on shortwave listening. That's pretty much how I got my start in amateur radio. I went to Radio Shack a while back, you know, many, many moons ago at this point, and picked up what they had was, um, it used to be like a DX440, I think it was, but the more recent version of that is the DX390. Shortwave receiver goes all the way from 30 kilohertz to 30 megahertz and will do uh, AM and sideman. I uh, used to get a lot of use out of that thing. I spent a lot of time listening to the BBC radio on 40 meters um, because I liked listening to news that wasn't derived in the United States because you seem to get a little fairer assessment of things that way. So I spent a lot of time doing that, and I also used it to be able to hear amateur radio folks on that. I never did actually get any QSL cards for, for just listening. It did uh, definitely pique my interest in amateur radio because I heard all those people out there talking and thought, wow, this would be really cool to be able to do that. And uh, some of the distances, especially hearing uh, you know, Asian, European, South American stations coming in just as clearly as if they were sitting in the next room, uh, that was really cool. And uh, this, this device that Richard mentioned, the Tentec, I just took a look at that today, and uh, that's a really neat thing. It, it seems a little bit pricey to me for what it does, considering that the entire interface is software-based. Seems like they should have uh, deferred some of the cost of the hardware because you can buy a you can buy a hardware based uh, shortwave receiver for the same price of what this uh, Tentec costs. But uh, it's still an interesting thing. It has a you know a GUI interface and allows you to uh, control the radio and software. Software developed radios are something that are coming up both as receivers and transceivers, and we'll be talking about them in the future. Well, there you go. And the SDR radios, we talked a little bit about them a couple shows back, I think it was. And they are an up-and-coming thing, and we will be talking about one. that uh, That's another uh, subject that Russ has on his list from out there at Ohio Linux Fest is one called GNU Radio. And I was taking a look at that, and it's going to be kind of interesting. But moving on with what we're talking about. Now, the shortwave stations that you'll be able to pick up nowadays, you know, there's still plenty of them out there. You'd think they'd be starting to drop by the wayside. But there's still stations like radio, uh, the Voice of Turkey and uh, Radio Taiwan and Radio Ukraine, the Voice of Vietnam, uh, Radio Netherlands, that kind of stuff still out there and operating. And with the new DRM coming in and uh, this kind of stuff, it runs... Uh, you plug your radio, the output of your radio into your sound card. There's software to decode it, and that's how you end up getting the, the signal that way. Some of the stations that are using that right now are uh, uh, China Radio International, Radio Netherlands, BBC World Service, Radio Canada. Uh, there's a bunch of them out there that are starting to move that direction. And I can't right this second put my finger on the piece of information, but it hasn't been uh, too terribly long ago that the... Uh, uh, FCC has started issuing DRM uh, licenses for shortwave. It's definitely something that's up and coming. Digital radio is in our future, you know, just like digital t- TV was. But without dwelling on it too long, let's move on to something else. Something else you can do with shortwave over uh, in your computers using Linux. Out there, there are time synchronization stations. The ones we're most familiar with as uh, amateur radio operators are WWV. Well, they have uh, something similar in Canada, which is called CHU. CHU. I'm not real sure what the initials are for, uh, but it's run by the uh, National Research uh, Council of Canada. 
the upside of CHU is the fact that uh, using some software, which is available for Linux, in fact, there's a uh, there's a tarball out there I know for sure for it. I'm not sure if there's any packages to run this. There may or may not be. I didn't get a chance to research that deeply. But you uh, hook your radio up to your sound card. You get the software set up as a cron job. And using the signal coming off of CHU, you can sync your radio uh, or your uh, computer time using uh, shortwave with CHU. And it's pretty simple to set up. Uh, like I said, I haven't had a lot of time to research it, but uh, excerpt from one of their web pages is the program primarily uses the top of the minute mark from the time signal. This is the 0.5 uh, second long, 1,000 hertz tone burst, which marks the start of a new minute. And it goes down through there, and it tells you all about this. Let me uh, point you all over to where I'm getting this from. It's www.rossi.com. This is something else which, like I said, there's a tarball available from their site that you can get. Uh, get installed and work with this, and there's plenty of documentation over there. Not all shortwave listeners just listen to people talk. There's a lot of uh, shortwave listeners that are out there wanting to listen to, listen to digital signals, you know, uh, RIDI, Navtex, uh, that kind of stuff coming from government services and that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there on shortwave that you can listen to and monitor and that kind of stuff, weather facts and that kind of thing. And a lot of the software that we use as amateur radio operators can be used for that purpose. In fact, there's one out there called uh, Multimode 5.9.2, which is, uh, I believe, a Windows program. You can use something like FL Digi to do the same thing, monitor ready and fax transmissions, slow scan TV if you've got a slow scan TV program. Come think of it, this says it run on Macintosh, so there may very well be a Linux version available. There's programs out there for logging stations. There's one out there that all it does, I think, is just shows you what the uh, broadcast schedule is, uh, Radio Explorer, to give you an idea of where they are and when they are so you can listen to them. But, you know, there's stations out there sending weather facts. There's uh, industrial and scientific utilization or something which is uh, one of the uh, bands it uses is 11 meters of all things, which is basically for uh, scientific instrumentation, which is part five equipment up inside that band so that uh, they can send information back and forth wirelessly. There's also strange things out there. There are stations out there that will send one Morse code character. There are stations out there where you hear a woman's voice sending random, uh, random strings of numbers. I've heard them called spy stations and that kind of stuff, but they're out there and they're pretty interesting to listen to. Uh, I've dialed down below 100, uh, 160 meters and heard stuff down there that I just really could not figure out at all what it was. Moving on a little bit further, we're trying to cover a lot of stuff in a little bit of time here. We've covered radio. We've kind of covered software a little bit. Let's talk about antennas a few minutes. You would not believe how closely related antennas for a transceiver and antennas for a receiver are uh well those of you who have been amateur radio operators for a while will just like you can't just throw a wire out the window and transmit on it it makes a difference how long a wire is when you're receiving now you can put the longest wire possible out in the yard and sometimes that'll give you good results in my experience 
on the receiving end, if you have an antenna that's fairly resonant for the frequencies that you're interested in, then you're going to pick up better and more signal. Now, ways to accomplish this is, with a random wire, cut roughly to the length you need. A simple dipole, something like that. You know, just about anything's better than some of these uh, whip antennas that come with these new these transceivers. Even the uh, wound coils on ferrite rods work much better than just some of these whip antennas. And I've found in the past that a, a simple dipole cut close to the frequency will give you more gain for listening than just about anything else. And I probably need to take a breath here and let Russ talk a few minutes. The uh, obscure stations, like the pirate radio type stuff, I never actually came across those kind of things. Everything I heard was, uh, you know, broadcast quality type radio. But the other thing is, you're talking about antennas. These wide-banded shortwave radios in a box, they come with one antenna, and you have to basically get what you get when you do the receiving. They have the ability to plug in external antennas, and you usually only get one port on them. So you can't plug in a bunch of different, uh, like, dipoles to cover, like, the 160 meter bands or or any of those different things. So you, you're kind of stuck with what resonates on the antenna that you've got. So the reception you're going to get up and down the bands is not going to be that great. So if you're trying to pick those weak, you know, pirate radio stations that are operating out of the North Atlantic or something, on these little, uh, you know, all-in-one boxes, you're, you're not going to get that kind of performance. You really need to have, you know, antennas that are resonant or close to resonant on the frequencies you want to listen to if you want to to uh, really get the gain you need to pick up weak stations. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck with, you know, uh, broadcast radio quality type stuff, things that put out, you know, thousands of watts or whatever. Well, one of the things we're we're talking about in that case, you know, everything's compromised. And uh, I know what you're talking about. I've had a couple of receivers that, yes, they had a phone jack in the front where you uh, hooked the antenna up to a, a phone plug, eighth inch or uh, eighth inch or quarter inch phone plug, and plugged them in the front. And yes, I mean, if you're going to be listening all the way from all the way down to, let's see what the bottom end of the range is, all the way down from uh, down below 120 meters to uh all the way up to almost 50 meters then yes you're going to have difficulty putting together an antenna for that but just to give uh give you folks some idea uh there's two types of antennas out there in the case of shortwave receiving um we use pretty much in amateur radio service what's called a passive antenna so unless we put something into it or we just wait for something to come by and hit it then we don't get a lot out of it. There's also something called an active antenna, and most of these active antennas are what you would run into, say you were uh, trying to pick up broadcast television, and you stuck a little amplifier or a preamp in line. That would turn your passive antenna into an active antenna, which uh, would be actively pulling in signals, for lack of a better way to express it, so that you could get a better response and there, there's lots of ways to patch into these antennas guys i mean it's in the case of an avid shortwave listener they're not necessarily going to take it shortwave radio everywhere they go if they do they're going to be using that pull-up telescope and whip antenna thing uh, but in the case of home use you're probably going to permanently mount an antenna of some sort so that you can pick up the maximum of what you're going to listen to but russ has got some good points there 
I just want to run over some some more of the basics before we go a little bit, get a little too further into this thing. You might be asking yourself, what frequencies am I going to find this stuff on? All the amateur bands are good. That's always been a favorite of shortwave listeners is the amateur radio bands. And even in case of scanners, they want to listen to the amateur radio repeaters and police and that kind of stuff. Your international broadcast bands, for the most part, depending on region, depending on country, depending on what the ITU says, there are uh, frequency bands in the 120-meter band, the 90-meter band, uh, and I'm just going to give you the ones that don't seem to be inside the hand bands, the 49-meter band, the 41-meter band, the 31-meter band, the 25-meter band, the 22-meter band, the 19-meter band, the 17-meter band, yeah, well, that's a ham radio band, isn't it? And the 13-meter band, and that doesn't take into account 11, 15, 60-meter band, and the 75-meter band. Now, one of the things we do have to our advantage is one of the uh, bands is the 41-meter band. Up until this year, the 41-meter band was what we call the top end of the 40-meter band as amateur radio operators. And that's the area from 7,100 to 7,300, or 7.100 megahertz to 7.300 megahertz. All the broadcast stations were told to vacate those frequencies. And I think it was by May they were supposed to be out of there. I haven't listened to them lately. In fact, here's a note down here at the bottom of the page. After March 29th of 2009, the spectrum from 7.1 to 7.2 kilohertz will no longer be available for broadcast purposes and will will be turned over to amateur radio operations worldwide. So they're pretty much out of that portion of the 41-meter band. But it does go all the way up to 7.6 megahertz. Some of the things we may not be taking into account as we run through these frequencies, because like I said, we're trying to cover a lot of ground really fast, is the fact that there are shows out there there's a lot of stuff out there as far as just entertainment and news and that kind of stuff that a lot of shortwave listeners want to listen to. There's a show with Ted Randall called QSO. It's an amateur radio uh, uh, program which runs in one of the international broadcast bands just below, I believe, the 40-meter band or possibly just below the 20-meter band. And uh, every, every week he does a two- or three-hour show Maybe it's more than once a week uh, concerning amateur radio. Uh, one of the most famous ones is Coast to Coast AM. Used to have Art Bell on it. Now it's got George Norrie. And if you listen to it, I'm sorry. But uh, that's another one that's, I think they're primarily on Sirius and that kind of stuff now. But they were on uh, International Shortwave. Those of you who used to follow Gene Scott when he was alive, and I know there's a lot of folks that didn't, or if they did, they did because they wanted a good laugh. Uh, he had international shortwave allocations. There's a, a lot of uh, stations down here in the south, uh, international Christian shortwave broadcast stations down here. So if you're scanning up and down the uh, broadcast bands down in this area, on a reasonably sensitive radio, you get hammered with the signals. So there's a lot of activity. Now we've kind of covered frequencies. You know, all of this stuff I'm talking about tonight, you can go and look up on the Internet. And it's just like anything else. Start slow and work your way up. 
Well, last but not least, I'm going to pimp Amazon because I know that they have a pretty good stock of active passive antennas, pretty good stock of uh, low-end shortwave receivers, but best of all, they've got a pretty good selection of books. And just like anything else out there, printed matter always goes a long way. And there's a lot of books out there for uh, for the folks that are starting out and all kinds of things, even shortwave listening. One of the books that really caught my interest and I think would probably be a great book for you guys that are even uh, considering checking into uh, some of the shortwave listening thing uh, is Passport to World Band Radio. Passport to World Band Radio has been around for years. You know, for the shortwave listener, in my opinion, it's kind of the police call. Maybe not that, but something that will give you get you pointed in the right direction. Kind of like now you're talking. It gives you ideas and tells you different uh, things about different aspects about monitoring shortwave listening, that kind of stuff. That's one of the books. I believe it's available over at the AWRL bookstore also. I, I won't guarantee it, but I know if they don't have it, they're going to have something equivalent to it. Uh, let me uh, turn it over to Russ a minute and uh, see if he's got anything else to say on this quick, brief overview of shortwave listening. This topic came up, as we said originally, from a guy who came by our booth at Ohio Linux Fest, and I want to thank him. Uh, and I'll have to say he knows who he is because I don't remember and I didn't write it down, who suggested the topic of shortwave listening because a lot of people take that as a step to getting into radio broadcasting or using transceivers for ham radio. And he was interested to find out if there were any uses of Linux or software in general with listening. And, of course, any uh, any radio that interfaces with a computer that can receive ham radio bands or any other bands between 30, you know, 30 kilohertz and 30 megahertz or even higher than that. Typically, if you're up into VHF, you're using a scanner as opposed to, you know, shortwave listening, which is down below, you know, 50 megahertz. But, you know, any, any transceiver or any receiver like the 10 tech that we mentioned before, RX320D, which has a software interface, and basically the radio itself has no controls. It's just a little black box and you plug it into your computer and you can use Linux to control it. You know, these are, these are good options for people who just want to be doing listening and who are get, maybe getting into the hobby or for some reason they're maybe not wanting to get on the air exactly, but have some interaction with the world of shortwave. So check out the 10 tech. Uh, check out some of the things that Richard said earlier. All of this stuff will be in the show notes, and we want to thank Bill once again for helping us get those show notes up, and uh, they should be current here pretty quick, so uh, that's good news too. So for everybody who's been missing uh, the links and some of the uh, topics of conversation we've had in the last few episodes, fear not, that information will be posted shortly. KO4RB is asking if you have had any specific experience with an active antenna for shortwave listening. And if so, what is, it, what is it? My experience with shortwave listening ended probably about the time I was 11 or 12 years old when I got my first radio that was on that band we don't talk about. 
And up until then, I was using everything from wire, uh, wire screens on the house, attaching a wire to them, to dropping a long wire out in the yard, to loading up a dog, or at least uh, wrapping them around the cat and everything else. So as far as the active antennas are concerned, I do know they make some for the amateur radio service, and I did consider using one in an apartment complex one time, but I never did get my hands on one. good place to go to read up on some of that information is uh, go over to the C Crane radio site. That's C dot Crane Company, and uh, they have some active antennas over there and some literature on active antennas, which uh, should be able to point you in the right direction. I will say that when I was doing shortwave listening with my DX three ninety Radio Shack had a portable active antenna. It ran off a nine volt battery plugged into the eighth inch jack. Uh, external antenna jack on the DX390, and it had inductors inside and a short, you know, just a regular pull-up antenna on it, but it did provide some gain, and it did give you variable frequency control, so you could dial in to the frequency you were listening on, and you did actually get probably three, three to five dB gain out of it if you were tuned into the proper frequency band. It worked pretty well, and the uh, antenna was not very expensive. It was probably about $30. I, I don't even know if they make them anymore. I know they're still making shortwave receivers, but I don't know if they're making that active antenna. But if you if you want a little indoor or portable you know, battery-powered solution, that, that did help some. Of course, the antenna that came, the pull-up antenna that came with the DX390 was probably, I want to say about five or six feet long. It's probably the longest uh, pull-up. Uh, chrome type antenna on a, on a portable radio you've ever seen and the radio itself wasn't that big so if you actually had it leaning at like a 45 degree angle it could actually tip the radio over that worked out pretty well but um, the powered one did help a little bit uh, that's my only experience with active active antennas I would like to correct myself here Radio Shack never actually made anything to my knowledge they uh, rebadged somebody else's product and the DX390, if I'm not mistaken, is a Grundig radio, just with the Radio Shack name on it. It's probably the G3 or something similar. And, yes, an active antenna. You know, basically the difference between an active and a passive antenna is that it's got a, a preamp on it. Sometimes they help, sometimes they don't. Uh, it depends on noise issues and that kind of stuff. I started listening to shortwave stations again when uh, uh, I became a ham because I had access to those frequencies through the radios I had. And I found that my antennas, which were cut for certain bands using and using uh, Transmatch or whatever, uh, I could pull in pretty good signals and stuff. So, uh, you know, there's nothing out there that works like antennas that's resonant for the frequency that you're transmitting or even listening to. Okay, so we've uh, talked about SWL. We've got the mystery meat in the middle. We even had a few feedbacks. Y'all really need to step up the feedback thing. Y'all are falling down on a job. Really falling down on the job. But that's okay. That's okay. It's the end of the year, and we forgot to say Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. But we're going to say Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah, too. With that, I guess we need to be moving on. If you want to contact me, my name is Richard, KB5JBV, and you can send me an email at KB5JBV at BlackSparrowMedia.com. That's KB5JBV at BlackSparrowMedia.com. Or follow me on one of the hundreds of networks I'm on, Facebook, Twitter, Identica, Friend Feeds, all that good stuff. 
Uh, I'm KB5JBV at just about every single one of them. So, uh, you're really not going to miss me. We also have a, well, we have a, a resonant frequency page over on Facebook. Sooner or later, me and Russell get together and put a Linux and Hamshack page up there. Or go by the website, see about the, the live schedule, because you really want to join us. We had a great time last time. We're a little more subdued this time. But go on over to the website and check out the schedule and try and join us live. That would be at lhsinfo.org. lhsinfo.org. With that, I'm going to throw it on over to Russ and let him throw his information in. Take it away, Russ. All right, this is Russ. You can contact me at K5TUX at BlackSparrowMedia.com. You can find me using J.R. Woodman on Twitter and the bazillion other uh, social networking sites out there on the Internet, except for probably some of the newer ones. But you know the ones, MySpace, Twitter, Identica, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, send us feedback, send us comments, send us questions. Uh, Send us topics that you're interested in. We will talk about them. Leave a comment over at the website, blacksparrowmedia.com stroke LHS or lhsinfo.org, whichever is easier for you to remember. Post comments on the forums at blacksparrowmedia.com. Leave us a voice comment at 888-455-0305. You know, I'm paying for that service right now, so go ahead and make use of it. doesn't cost you anything if you're in the United States anyway. Not sure about Canada and overseas, but at least if you're in the U.S., give us a call, leave us a message. With that, this is Richard down here in the bunker in Balt Springs, Texas. And this is Russ from deep between the peaks in the pine forest of north central Arkansas. And we will catch you all next time.